0: Shulamith invites her husband to take her on an adventure in the wilderness. Love really does conquer all, and the strength of our relationships is built long before we're actually in them. All this and more as we continue our year with Solomon. I'm Philip Jackson, and this is the Married Now What podcast. So where we where we left Shulamith and her lover, they were uh, coming together, and uh, we found them at the end, uh, or the first part of chapter seven. Um, falling asleep with the with the kisses of each other on their lips that they gently move into sleep as they are thinking about each other and what we're going to see in this this last section remember that that um, song of songs is not a, a narrative that goes from point A to point B it's a collection of different songs and different love poetry. The characters are the same, but the elements change. And we'll, we'll drop from one, one scenario into another scenario. And so we're going to close out with the last part of chapter 7 and then chapter 8 this morning. So we're going to start in verse 11. Verse 11 starts by saying um, Shulamith is inviting her, her lover to come in for intimacy with her, and she says, "'Come, my love, let's go to the field.'" Let's spend the night among the henna blossoms. Let's go early to the vineyards. Let's see if the vine has budded, if the blossom has opened, if the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give off a fragrance, and and at our doors is every delicacy, new as well as old. I have treasured them up for you, my love. This first part where she says, come, my love, let's go into the field and let's spend the night among the henna blossoms, um, Responding to the desire of her beloved, she is uh, inviting him to come away with her on a trip to the countryside to enjoy their intimacy. Um, It was a weekend getaway for a couple deeply in love. Now, if you remember earlier in chapter 2, we saw him come from the wilderness, and he was inviting her with him to, to the adventure right? Wilderness is a symbol of adventure. The mountains are a symbol of adventure, not just in, in scripture, but also in literature broadly. And so we saw him coming from the wilderness. Remember this picture from chapter two, where he is coming, bounding down the mountain like a gazelle. And so she sees him come and, and to invite her to come on this adventure. Well, now we, she, we see her changing things up again, and now she's inviting him. She seems to have matured in her self-confidence since the early days of their courtship right she before she remember she said don't look at me I am I'm, I'm a, an ordinary woman I'm a regular girl I've, I've been out in the Sun I've been um, I'm not fair I haven't taken care of myself like these these pretty women are in the palace and so she says don't look at me but now she's she's understood something different about who she is that um, It's not just him who's supposed to pursue her, she's also supposed to pursue him. And then this is a lesson for us as we look at our relationships, that it's very easy for um, the man to think that he's always the one that has to initiate um, being with her or pursuing the relationship. And yes, there is an element of that where God has made the man to be the habitual pursuer of his bride. But at the same time, she's recognizing something that she has a responsibility to pursue him. Well, it's not just his job to pursue her. Um, so when he when he invited her, he had to convince her before. But now she's so ready to be with him that she asks him to leave. She asks him to, to get out of there. Um, one of the commentators that I read noted that the women of Jerusalem these are the the ladies who were in the harem of Solomon. These are the kind of the um, Think about the, the women of Jerusalem as like the voice inside her head, the doubtful voice that says, are you sure about that? Are you sure about that? This is represent, representative of, of you ladies. You have this constant dialogue going inside of your head about all the things that could go wrong or might go wrong or all the insecurities that you carry with you. That's what the Daughters of Jerusalem represent in this book. And so she is constantly having to deal with these questions, right? And the daughters of Jerusalem are tr- have been trying to get her to abandon her love. Remember back in chapter 6, they tried to get her with, by saying, what's so special about this guy? Um, but she's rejected them, and she's rejected this 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 thinking. right? And um, she knows that she belongs with her lover. She knows that she belongs with him and that he belongs to her. And this is something that um, speaks also to our relationship with Christ. Remember that the Song of Songs is two sides of the same coin. So... Um, we have two ends of a spectrum. One, one end over here says that Song of Psalms is a commentary on God's relationship with humanity, either God and Israel or Jesus and the church. Over here on this end is just, it's erotic language that all we're dealing with is physical sex. But I believe the truth is it's somewhere here in the middle that these are two sides of the same coin. That just like Ephesians teaches us that marriage teaches the, that, that marriage is a symbol, it's a picture of the relationship between Jesus and the church. In the same way, Uh, Song of Songs does that. That There's elements that are similar on both sides. And um, Charles Spurgeon said this about this particular idea about her inviting him to come to the wilderness, uh, talking about God and his relationship with the church. He says, If we must at any time listen to the praises of our virtues, if we have served God so that the church recognizes and rewards our usefulness, it is well for us to listen just as long as we are obliged to do, but no longer, and then to let us turn aside at once to something more practical and more healthful in our own spirits. Now listen to this. The spouse seems abruptly to break off from listening to uh, to the song of the virgins, talking about the daughters of Jerusalem, and turns to her own husband, Lord, communion with whom is ever blessed and ever profitable. She says to him, come, my beloved, let's go forth into the field. In other words, what she's saying is, I'm going to block out all these voices that tell me that we're not supposed to be together, and I'm going to pursue you conscious decisions made. But she says, you know what? All of these thoughts in my head are just thoughts. And I, it comes down to the point to where I have to make a conscious decision that either I'm going to serve my husband and love my husband or I'm not. And so that's where she she comes. So she this next part where she says, let's go early to the vineyards. Let's see if the vine has budded, if the blossom has opened, if the pomegranates, pomegranates are in bloom. So Earlier in, in Song of Songs, in chapter 2 and verse 6, we saw springtime was an emblem of their love, right? So this is the idea of love is, is budding, there's all this excitement. Think about Bambi, right? Spring is like where all the activity is going, right? And everything is coming alive. So she uses this imagery in the same way to communicate her desire to enjoy the freshness and strength of their love and intimacy. Uh, one commentator put it this way, he says, The poet thus reveals that their relationship has gone from spring to spring and that now has experienced the full cycle of growth, you will find in your relationship, in your marriage, that there are seasons of spring, there are seasons of fall, and there are seasons of winter. This is a natural cycle of life where you will have moments where you are passionately in love with each other. There are also going to be moments where you are literally just surviving day to day. And the key is how do you move through those seasons gracefully and serve each other and love each other. And understand that, that as you walk through those winter seasons, as you walk through those spring seasons, they all will change eventually. So, how do you walk through that in a way that is reflective of your relationship with Christ and how you love your, your spouse? So she continues on. She says, There I will give you my love. So she says, We're going to go to the vineyard where all the blossoms are, where everything has been opened up, and there I'm going to give you my love. She was refreshingly honest and opened about her, to her beloved. Right? She says to him, let's get away to the countryside and make love. This is an invitation likely to appeal to her husband. Her husband's thinking, okay, she's inviting me to go to bed. This is a game changer. Because typically a man will initiate for sex. He will try to serve his wife. He'll go over and over and over again, only to be met with rejection. This is a very real part of a married life. Because God made men different than he made women he made men to be the pursuers naturally and so that is why there's seems like there's always an initiation from the man to be together but what's happening here is that she's realizing wait a minute I've got a part to play here and so she initiates with him hey I want to be with you she's turning the tables and she's understanding that her intimacy is not just gonna be contingent on him and his invitations right um, in this we see some remarkable freedom and in, in joy in their lovemaking, right? One of the things that I want you to think about is that sexual Im- intimacy was not just understood to be the husband's pleasure and the wife's duty. There's a spirit throughout the Song of Solomon that shows how good marital love can be. It's not just about, oh, this is, got to just do the job again, got to do the deed again, right? It's about enjoying each other and that both of you have a, a role to play in this. That it's not just um, the utility of it there is a um, there is honestly a, a, a vein that runs through Christian heritage or Western heritage really that that looks at sex as simply the means to bear children and to conceive children and what that does is that sets us up for deception because what that implies is that God wants you and his design for you is to always have children and that that's the point of your marriage, is to have children. Now, we are called to be fruitful and to multiply, that is true. But the call to be fruitful and multiply doesn't come at the expense of experiencing each other together. Because God placed the man and the woman in the garden to experience each other, to enjoy each other, and the children didn't come until after the fall. I think that tells us something about God's intention. That it is very common for us in our Christian culture to place children and childbearing up here, As the idol that we serve. We go from serving our spouse as an idol, our job as an idol, our career as an idol, our family as an idol, to letting our children become an idol. And so what happens is that when we reach that point to where we get married and all of a sudden we can't have a baby, what's the matter with me? And Satan has deceived us with bad expectations. And so we've got to remember that This is something that God intends for us to enjoy together. This isn't just about utility. One commentator put it this way. way. He said, Song of Solomon teaches that true freedom does not come by someone's being liberated from marriage. The truth is that genuine liberation comes in marriage. Marriage is a secure hedge of protection that love can grow in it. And as love is nurtured, it produces freedom and fulfillment. You will find that as you grow closer to your spouse that there is freedom in that, that there is hope in that, that there is joy in that. I'll never forget coming home from a trip, and I was, I was riding with an older gentleman, and typically I'll ask you know, the question, what do you do for fun, just to kind of make small talk and to get to know the person. And I asked him that. He's in his mid-70s, and I said, what do you do for fun? He totally took me off guard because most guys say, well, I like to play games or I like to go to basketball, I like to see sports or whatever, I'll go hunting. You know what he said to me? After a long pause he said, you know, I just love to be with my wife. That's my favorite thing. It's to spend time with my wife. And as a a guy in his late 20s thinking how I feel like a piece of garbage right now <laughs> that what if that was our delight to be with each other. In the same way think about Jesus that he loved us so much that he gave his life for us. Why? So that he could be with us. So that we could be with him. That's a testament to ultimate joy and satisfaction. That that, that's what marriage brings, is satisfaction. That's why the, the crown jewel of, of marriage is not sex, it's not children, it's not any of those things. It's the friendship that you develop with your spouse. That's the greatest thing about marriage, is that you enjoy being with each other, I can testify to this, as Lindsay and I have literally grown up together in marriage, being married at 18 and 19, that it is, it's fun to just be with her and to laugh and to tell jokes and to go see movies and to just be in the same space. So she continues on and she says, the mandrakes give off a fragrance, okay? The mandrakes are a, uh, in the ancient world, were a... Um, Aphrodisiac, right? This is a, a plant that's used to, it symbolizes fertility and sexual pleasure. Um, it's also referred to as the love apple. It has a pungent fragrance um, that's been considered for thousands of years as being uh, something that, that um, is associated with love, right? This, uh, this can be used as, th- think about this. So she's inviting him. She wants to take him to the wilderness to make love to him. Looking at all the vibrance of spring and, the, and everything blooming, and so she makes references to the the mandrake, the fragrance of the mandrakes. This is something that you, when, when you are around it, there's a there's a definite, absolute association with sex. So this is this is she's she's making a direct reference here to the the act of lovemaking, the smells and the experience of lovemaking. Um, this can be also seen as her inviting her and telling her husband that um, she wants to be with him to have a child together. She continues and says that the doors is every delicacy, new as well as old. The imagery here of open doors and budding vines and open blossoms can be seen as an invitation for her husband to come and, and physically take her in, in, um, in the sexual act. As he explores her body and she opens herself to him that's the imagery here she says um, that they have access to every delicacy both old and new one of the things that she's talking about here she's referring to things that are consistent in their sexual relationship right there are things that that are that are constant within a marriage how you go through intimacy but she says there's also new things that they're exploring and they're learning and they are growing together and she says, uh, I have treasured them up for you. Notice these new and old things. She's treasured up for you, my love. This phrase implies that she's been planning their time together. So, like I said before, usually the man's the instigator of love making, but here we see that Shulamith has been planning. She's been thinking about this. She's been thinking about the things that, we, that they normally do. She's been thinking about new things that they could do. She's been being creative. Um, this is something that is not just for husbands, but is something for wives to be thinking about as well. How are you being intentional about your sexual relationship with your husband. That it's not just, remember, about the utility of, of being together. It's about how are you creatively exploring life with each other. Um, an excellent resource for this, I'll post this on our Facebook group, but um, there's a book that I read last year called Intimate Issues, 21 Questions Christian Women Ask About Sex by Linda Dillow and Lorraine Pintus. Um, it's a biblically-based resource for women wanting to know more about sex. And this is, they cover all kinds of questions. They cover what does sex look like, um, what do boundaries look like in sex and marriage? Um, how do I recover from sexual trauma before marriage or within my marriage? How do I deal with the aftermath of having an abortion? How do I um, love my husband within the context of Bibli- the biblical narrative? How do I understand how to love each other? Um, how to heal and recover from sexual activity before dur- and during marriage? outside of the context of the marriage? How do you deal with a cheating spouse? How do you deal with, your, if, you're, if you yourself have gone through that kind of a situation? Um, this book is incredible. It doesn't pull any punches. It's actually quite good. Um, but it's um, it's definitely wor- wor- worth looking into. It's called Intimate Issues, 21 Questions Christian Women Ask About Sex um, by Linda Dillo and Lorraine Penta. So I would, re- I would highly recommend that you read that for you ladies. Okay, so we move on to chapter eight. So she continues her, um, her description of her lover, and she, uh, so she says this in verse 1. She says, If only I could treat you like my brother, one who nursed at my mother's breasts. I would find you in public and kiss you, and no one would scorn me. I would lead you, I would take you to the house of my mother who taught me. I would give you spiced wine to drink for my pomegranate juice. Um, his left hand is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. She begins by saying, if only I could treat you like my brother, the one, like the one who nursed at my brother's breast. The idea here is that she's not talking about loving him like a brother, like in our, from our perspective. What she's saying is that at this time in, in the ancient world, public displays of affection were taboo uh, between, a husband, between a man and a woman who weren't related. But you could openly show affection to your family, your siblings, and to your parents. And so what she's saying is, I want so badly to love you publicly like I love you privately. That's what she's saying. That's, that's uh, her, her comments here. She says, I would find you and kiss you and no one would scorn me, right? If she was able to do this, she would grab him and kiss him without fear of any social scorn. She says, I would lead you, I would take you to the, to the house of my mother who taught me. She wanted to experience love within the approval of her family. Now remember that, that the, the mother, the language here talking about the mother is um, referring to family, and a mother's place in the betrothal process. So she, this, this is about not necessarily about um, I want to be in my parents' house so that we can make love together. This is about I want to be in the context and to have the blessing of my family. That's what I want the most because that's something that is very close to all of us. As a, there's, a, there's a very real um, tension that happens between a. A bride and her family when she leaves her family and joins with her husband. That transition can be incredibly difficult or it can be an incredible blessing. So that's an element that as you you grow together, there is a natural going to be a tension there. One of the things that Lindsay and I discussed in premarital counseling is it's very good for a season to separate from your family, We did that for the first 30 days of our marriage. We, we talked to our our parents, but we didn't go over there for dinner. We didn't see them. We didn't, we didn't visit with them. We took 30 days just to ourselves. And this is a biblical idea in Deuteronomy chapter 25, God commands men who have been newly married to not be involved in anything for a year. You can't serve in the army. You can't work. You can't go anywhere. Your job is to be a husband for one year. So the community would support that marriage for a year they would give them food they would make sure that they were taken care of but you have one job in the first year and that is to tend to your own marriage your own family and it did that on purpose you know we do that here at evergreen in some ways too if there's a a young couple who doesn't have a whole lot of life experience that have just gotten married a lot of times if they want to serve in an official capacity they want to commit themselves to a long-term service the pastors will say we'll we'll put limits around that and say no your primary responsibility is to, going to be to your family because it's very real for us to be like okay cool we're married now we're going to check that box and we're going to move on but what happens is we don't take the time to lay a foundation for our our own relationship and so as you look at your lives and as you look at your marriages know that that that, that transition between single to married or even in the first 5 or 6 years of your marriage there are going to be all kinds of pressures that you're going to have to deal with What do you do with the holiday circuit where you have to when we got married we were going to six Christmases with my family six that's just my family so you have aunts and uncles and great aunts and uncles and grandparents and parents and what happens when your parents don't get along with your grandparents and all these all these things this thing you know you have all this all this contention it's like well we just want to we just want to have Christmas that's one element one of the things that we did is we established the very first year Christmas morning is always going to be Philip and Lindsay. Always. My parents know this now after almost 17 years of marriage. Her parents know this. We are not going anywhere Christmas morning. We're not going to stay the night at your house Christmas Eve. We love you, but we're not going to. We'll come over and we'll have dinner with you. We might open a couple of presents, but we're not staying. Christmas morning is for us. Establishing those boundaries is important. So as you walk through the first season of your marriage— it's great to have the support of your parents. It's great to have support of your of your close family, but the point is that you are a family now and you have to, you have to see your marriage that way, and make a conscious decision to protect it. So what she's wanting here, she's wanting the approval of her family. she's wanting to have the, uh, the, the endorsement of her of her parents. Right. So the verb here for lead, she says, I would, I would lead you and take you. The verb here uh, is used nearly 99 times in the Old Testament with the meaning of teach or learn. The teacher is the mother who has instructed her daughter in the facts of life as it is that the schoolroom that she wants to return to that, sh- to to that schoolroom to show how well she's learned her lessons. She wants to show her mom how good of a wife she is. That's what she wants. She wants to make that point. She says, Mama, you taught me, and so here I am doing it. Um, Okay, she moves on here. She says, I would give you spiced wine to drink from my pomegranate juice. Now remember, fruit is is a metaphor for either the sexual act or for body parts sometimes. Okay, so wine rendered particularly strong and invigorating. This is, this is spiced wine. So typically, every home back in this, in this generation, they would have their own spices and recipe for the wine. They would have basic wine that they would have, and then that each house would treat that wine in different ways. And so what she's saying is that I'm going to give you my particular vintage. Um, this, this is an homage back to their wedding day. Back in the ancient culture, when they would be married, the husband and the wife... They would drink from the same cup when they were, when they were uh, engaged to be married, and they would also do the same thing at their wedding, that they would share the cup together. And this is a symbol of their unity, right? Um, the idea here is that um, they would show that, they're, that they enjoy and they equally bear the responsibility and comforts to being married. Um, particularly this language about the juice of a pomegranate, she says... Um, spiced wine from the juice of my pomegranate. The, the literal translation of this phrase says, from wine spiced or spiced wine from the sweet wine of my pomegranate. The repetition of the word from in these words, how they're put together like a daisy chain, um, reinforces the image of drinking from a container and probably is connected to these images from before. Think about this. In chapter 7, um, she's described as uh, the image of a navel as the chalice or, or a cup. Um, in, in verse nine of chapter seven, it says the image of drinking her kisses like wine, right? Chapter eight, verse one says the image of drinking at a mother's breast. All of these things combined to describe Shulamus's mouth is watering during lovemaking, that she is thirsty. That's what she's describing here. That I am thirsty for your kisses. I am, um, I'm thirsty to be with you. She's telling her lover that she desires to give herself to him to satisfy his thirst. That's what she's saying. So in the following verses, um, we see some similarities. As we close out the Song of Solomon, um, or the Song of Songs, we're going to see some similarities from the way that it started. Now, if you remember when it started, Shulamith, uh, she's in the palace, and she is, she's telling the daughter of Jerusalem, don't look at me, I'm a humble girl, I'm, my, my skin is dark like the tents of Kadar. These are, these are black tents made of black goat hair. She says, "I've been working out in the sun. I'm I'm tan. I am. I've got calluses on my hands. I'm just a regular person." And so we're going to see some of that same imagery played out here in these last last verses. Okay, um, so check this out in verse three. Uh, well, first, so, so verse three, she says, "His left hand is under my head, and his right arm embraces me." So like before, she she said this in chapter one. The idea is that he took her took her from her one hand behind her head and one hand behind the small of her back. In the uh, as they are together, okay. It's similar to what we've seen already. Verse four, it says, um, "Young women of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time." Now, remember, she she's, has this echo and response with the with the women of Jerusalem, where she keeps telling them, "Hey, listen, love is a potent thing, sex is a potent thing. Do not awaken this before its time." And this is after she's been thinking about all this all this with her with her. Her husband her lover she repeats her warning to the young women of Jerusalem to guard their sexuality right this is the close of this section um, but having just seen and heard all this this language about them being together and the things they want to do to each other and how they want to enjoy each other and the attitudes of the of the beautiful dance between a man and a woman before they make love and when they're making love She's reminding them, listen, this is something that is incredibly powerful. This warning can teach us two things. The first is that sex within healthy boundaries, um, the boundaries that God gave us, is incredibly fulfilling, and it bonds us to our spouses. One One of the practical things is that whenever a man and a woman are together in the act of lovemaking, when it culminates to the end result our brains will actually imprint on what's in front of our eyeballs so when you when you're face-to-face with your spouse and you're making love what happens is that your brain sends out a, a message of dopamine oxytocin and epinephrine, and it literally bonds you to that person oxytocin is the bonding hormone that a mother experiences when she nurses her child what's happening is that her brain is rewiring itself to not, not necessarily forget the pains of childbirth, but what it does is it gives the sweetness of what God intends for that bond to look like so that she doesn't resent her child for the pain that it caused her. Oxytocin is the, is the bonding hormone that God gives us to remind us within our subconscious of who we are connected to. This is where the deep roots of pornography are so de- so destructive and dangerous because when when a man or woman watches pornography what happens is that those images that are in front of their mind in front of their 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 eyeballs whenever they are whenever they're committing that sin they're placing that idol in front of what God intended they become physically bonded to that image on the screen chemically in their head so they're creating neuropathways they're creating default settings to where that's what they go to that's what they desire And it's not because they make a conscious decision to be addicted that way, it's because their brain is literally made to program itself that way. So as you make love to each other, I want to encourage you to do it with the light on, so that you can see each other. That that is a real healthy thing for you to do as a a married couple, to be able to see each other, because that's a way that God has intended for you to be bonded together. The other thing that this teaches us is that outside of God's design, that sex is a powerfully destructive force. Okay, There's no way to describe the, the, the damage that extramarital sex and sex outside of the boundaries of what God intended can do to us because it literally changes our brain, and it can be incredibly destructive. So this is why she's warned us now three times to not, to not awaken love before the appropriate time. Okay, so now she makes an observation in verse 5. Um, who is coming up from the wilderness, leaning on the one that she loves? Now hold up a second. The last time we looked in the wilderness, we saw, we saw the stag. We saw the, the young man coming, bounding down the mountain, right? But now the image is that we look and we say, wait, who's coming out of the trees over there? He's not alone. She's with him. She's leaning on him. They're together. She says, "Who's coming out of the wilderness, leaning on the one that she loves?" This is a different sight than before. Right? Previously, we saw the shepherd come, and he was he was um, approaching her like this wild stag who was full of of vigor, and he was he was strong. But now we see a testimony here that she's no longer this timid little girl who doesn't want people to look at her. That she's with her husband and he, they have been on, the, on an adventure together. See, one of the things about life and about marriage is that it has a way of galvanizing your relationship. I know many of you have already gone through struggles and challenges in your marriage, either they are disagreements or they're pressure with family or pressure with friends. Um, those adventures are the things that bond you together, it's one of the sweet parts of marriage that you go through these common struggles and you get stronger together. You learn teamwork. You learn how to face these things together. The healthy marriage is one that embraces lessons, right? Think about what what James tells us in James chapter 1, to count it all joy when we experience trials. Why? Because the trying of our faith is going to make us eventually perfect. That's one of the payoffs of a godly marriage, is that as we go through the struggle, as we go through challenges, God's going to bond us together and he's going to make us perfect. Another thing is that this starts to show us that sex plays a role in the stresses of life. This is a very real thing. That God made sex to do all kinds of things to bond us together as we become one flesh. That as we have sex with our spouse in a moment of stress and of struggle, it gives us a, gives us a reset. It gives us a moment where we can go, "Oh, wow. I can breathe for a second." that this is a sweet part of what God's intended for us, that he forges us together in our adversity, and he uses sex as a tool to be able to do that. Um, there is a, that's a real thing. I know that the, the temptation is, I'm so stressed right now, I can't even focus on this. But the reality is that this is something that God intended for you to be able to relieve some stress. And it's not something that should be cheap and thrown away. It's something that he's designed on purpose. The other thing, think about them coming out of the woods together, That their hardship has built trust and friendship and intimacy and accountability and love and joy that those challenges that they've gone through the reason they're arm-in-arm is yeah they're probably tired but the truth is that they're satisfied that our relationship with our spouse coming out of the wilderness coming out of that winter season is that we don't come out dead we come out alive and strong and unified this is a sweet part of what god intended for us think about this on the other side of the coin about our relationship with christ one pastor said this he said beloved there is no part of the pilgrimage of a saint in which he can afford to walk in any other way but in the way of leaning he comes up at the first and he comes up at the last still leaning still leaning upon Jesus Christ. I am leaning more and more heavily upon Christ, the the older he grows. There's a picture here of us as we lean on, on, on Jesus, as we lean on our relationship with our Lord and Savior, that these challenges that we face are opportunities for us to draw close to him, to be bonded to him, to be totally enveloped in his love and his care for us that when we walk out of these, these seasons of our life, these winters of our life, that we are not we're not weak. Though we are oppressed, we are not destroyed. We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. This is the promise of those who love him. The beautiful thing is that as your spouse is a follower of Christ and you're a follower of, of Christ, when you come out on the back end, yes, you're closer together in your relationship together, but even more so, you're closer to your, to your Lord. That's the beautiful part about this, is that you get to do this together with someone. And then the day will come that you'll be able to look back and say, not just remember that hard season that we went through, it's remember what God did in this. That is a huge testimony. Because Jesus has invited us to be more than conquerors as co-heirs of Christ, co-heirs with him, to be able to come out of these, these bad seasons, these difficult seasons, and say, wow, I know you love me, but that can't compare to the way that Jesus loves me. And so I lean on him. So now she tells us what happened. So she, she goes back and she's uh, Shumath is going to give us a commentary about what happened out in the wilderness, right? So she starts in verse 5, with the second part of verse 5. She says, I awakened you under the apricot tree. There your mother conceived you, and there she conceived and gave birth to you. Set me as a seal in your heart, as a seal in your arm, for love is as strong as death, ardent love as an unrelenting as unrelenting as shield love 's flames are fiery flames, the fiercest of all, mighty waters cannot extinguish love, rivers cannot sweep it away. If a man were to give all his wealth for love, it would be utterly scorned. so she starts by describing this apricot tree and where her where um, his mother conceived him and where uh, he gave she gave birth to him. Um, this is right after she just warned the daughters of Jerusalem to not awaken love too early. Now, notice the imagery is the, is, is similar, where she says, "Don't awaken love too early," and then she talks about waking him up under the apricot tree. This is on purpose. In previous passage passages, apples. Remember, we talked about apples and pomegranates. These are all erotic symbols, right? Um, she's uh, she's compared her lover at, at like an apple tree. Um, that she enjoys the fruit, he's referred to her as pomegranates and other things. Um, remember, she uh, the the love under a tree is a familiar lo- uh, motif in, in poetry, especially in this passage. And she calls f- uh, for apples to treat her love sickness. Remember back in chapter two, and that he longs for her like her breath, like apple scented um, breath. Um. Notice also that the place where their love is awakened was on the adventure of their marriage. Think about this. They're in the wilderness. They are alone on the adventure, and this is where their love really blossoms. This is important because this shows us that the wilderness is an an, important place. Notice that their love didn't start in a comfortable, safe place. It didn't start in a comfortable room. With a, with a padded bed. It didn't start in a palace. It didn't start in a in a protected, safe zone. It, set, it, it took place in the hardship of the adventure, the difficulty of life. This is what the first several years of your marriage looks like. The reason why you go through the challenges of relationships moving and things changing and tension with parents or tension with family, this is what the nature of it's like to be an adult, is that God is ripping you away from your flesh, and he is putting you squarely in the hands of Jesus. That's what's happening here. The association of his mother here in these first couple of verses is a reminder that sexual pleasure is not just for the young generation. It connects back to the event that made the young woman's present love possible, his conception and birth, right? The point is of this is to mention not necessarily that he was conceived under this specific tree, or he was born here, the language describes origin. She says, in other words, this is happening to us in the adventure in the wilderness, in the same way that, that it happened to your parents in the wilderness, in the same way that it happened to my parents in the wilderness, in the same way that this happened to our grandparents in the wilderness. This is how life is created. This is how marriages are forged together. This is how we are sealed with a purpose, is being in the wilderness on the mountain. She says, "Set me as a seal on your heart, as a seal on your arm." A seal in the ancient world was um, was an instrument. It was either a ring or a bracelet. It was worn either on a chain or a cord around the neck, right here over the over the heart, or it was it was worn as a ring or a bracelet that could be worn here on the wrist or up further on the arm. And the imagery here, that she's specifically not talking about, the imprint that the that the seal leaves. She's not talking about um, her being a, um, the remnant of a seal. She's talking about the seal itself. What does the seal symbolize? The seal symbolizes authority. When a king or a dignitary would make a decree or they would write a law, what they would do is they would emboss that, they would pour hot wax on it, and then they would take that seal that was either around their neck or on their wrist or on their finger, and as soon as the, the wax began to dry, they would press that seal into the wax, and it would, they would, when they pulled it out, it would leave an image behind. Typically, it was an image of the ruler himself, his face, his profile. And what that meant was, this is an official document. This is, a, this is sealed, signed, sealed, and delivered. right? So she's saying, I want to be your instrument of authority. Think back a few lessons when we talked about Adam and Eve in the garden. That God said, he took Adam, man, he placed him in the garden. He gave him a job. I want you to subdue the earth, to tend and to steward it, to serve and to protect it. And then he waited, and God made the observation, man can't do this by himself. This is too big of a job. And he made him that way on purpose, with imitations. And he waited until all of creation walked past Adam. He gave every name. He bestowed a name. Remember, authority, primary authority is to bestow a name. And as those animals walked past him, Adam finally came to the end, and he said, wow, everyone has its pair but me. And so once he came to that realization, then God says, okay, I'm going to make an easer, divine military help in a time of national emergency. I'm going to make him an easer of equal strength, of equal power, of equal authority. And I'm going to place that easer alongside of him to tend to serve and protect my creation. What she's asking for here is to be his easer. She's saying, I want to be your seal. I want you to wear me on your hand or on your on your chest. There's other imagery that we've talked about already in in Proverbs where um, Scripture tells us to take God's word and to wear it like a pendant across our chest. This is a medallion in the ancient world that would protect from the enemy, would protect from evil, would protect from Satan and the... and the fleshly desires of life. She's saying, take me, not just because I am a utility for you to satisfy your sexual appetite or to produce children for you, but take me because I want to be a symbol of your authority because God's given you a gift and a responsibility. Let me join you in that. That's what she's saying here. Typically, whoever had the seal would also be the seriat or the spokesman for the person who, who is the ultimate authority. In the same way that we are sealed into Christ with a promise and carry his name, that's what she's asking for here. So she ends her statement with a series of observations about their relationship, right, and the power of love. So think about this here. So she says, For love is as strong as death, ardent, or some of your Bibles might say jealous. Love is is as unrelenting as Sheol. Um, in this passage, we can see both meanings of the Song of Songs, right? First meaning was, is our relationship with our spouse. The other, the other relationship is us with God. So death and sheol. Sheol is the old Hebrew word for hell. And so what she's saying is that love is stronger than hell and death. Think about the two things that we could not conquer, sin and death. Death represents our physical death on earth. Hell represents our eternal death in sin. That there are two things that mankind could not not compete again and could not destroy. But love, Jesus, destroyed both, overcame both, right? Death is the ultimate result of our separation from God because of sin. Um, But Jesus took care of that. We also see a couple of other parallels here. The first is the unrelenting love of God that crushed sin and death. The second one here is as a husband and his wife submit to God's design that their lives put their spouse's needs above their own. You see, here's the thing. Love can conquer everything. And in a cheap way, our world reminds us of that. Love conquers all. Love wins, right? We've had kind of all kinds of hashtags around about this, but think about this. God has a design here in marriage that he takes a sinful man and he takes a sinful woman and he puts them together in close proximity and naturally what happens is that their sinfulness comes out. There's contention, there are arguments, there are unmet expectations, there are all kinds, of, there's all kinds of things that happen between those two people. And in a way, what God does is he puts two people into the furnace together. He allows their own sinfulness, their own selfishness, the issues of their life to boil to the top. And slowly but surely he distills them into being true, honest, humble followers of God. That this is what it means for us to walk through these adventures together as with our spouses is that God is heating us up so that he can pull the sinfulness out of us. The recipe for us to defeat sin is to love our spouses well by sacrifice. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. In the process of doing both of these things, we become like him, and he draws the sinfulness out of us. She goes on to talk about, she says, love's flames are fiery flames, the fiercest of all. In the Bible, fire represents testing. It represents this furnace that we're talking about. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about it this way. Think about this. He says, for no one can lay any other foundation than what has been laid down. That foundation is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, it will be lost, but he will be saved. Yet it will be like an escape through fire. This is how God's love tests us. That if we build our families on anything besides God's word and our relationship with Jesus, it will crumble and it will fail. What she's saying here is that love conquers all and love is a fierce furnace. That's the point. The idea that well when I get married everything's going to be cool, everything's going to be fine. We're going to be able to kind of let pull back a little bit and kind of rest. I'm sorry, it gets faster. It gets worse. It just does. Tensions grow with, between you and your spouse. They grow with others. But if you do it in a godly way, what happens is that you turn inward and you begin to serve each other, and God changes your heart. She goes on in verse 7. She says, Mighty waters cannot extinguish love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. Love cannot be overcome. Think about this. This is not some Hollywood tagline or, f- or fleshly romantic sentiment. It means that godly love literally conquers sin and death. That means that godly love can literally overcome anything that you are going to face. Nothing can change that. And she says, kind of tongue-in-cheeks here, she says, If a man were to give all his wealth for love, it would be utterly scorned. It made me think of the old Beatles song, Can't Buy Me Love. You cannot produce this on your own. This isn't something that you can just write a check for. The cost is simple, but it's difficult. If you want a red-hot, a white-hot marriage, I'll tell you what it's going to cost you. Your life. Everything. It is going to cost your career. It is going to cost your promotions. It is going to cost your relationship with friends. It's going to cost your relationship with your family. It's going to cost everything. If you want to have a white-hot marriage, and I'm not just talking about sex, I'm talking about every aspect of your relationship. If you want to have a solid foundation built on Christ, it has to be by dying to yourself. By total abandonment and absolute trust, that is how we build a relationship. That is what it means. Water can't extinguish this fire. You can't buy it couple of the verses here and then we're going to be done. there's a natural break here as the text shifts away so we're going to go back and we're going to talk about some things that were talked about in the first chapter about um, her family and about stewardship about what it means what biblical femininity looks like. Um, if you remember that she mentioned one of the reasons that she was dark was because her brothers made her work in the vineyard right and so uh, she begins here in verse 9 she says our, this is her brother's speaking sorry her brother speaking, says, our sister is young. She has no breasts. What will we do for our sister on the day she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build a silver parapet on it. If she is a door, we will enclose it with cedar planks. What they're talking about here is her integrity, right? So when, when they make the comment that she has no breasts, what are we going to do for her on the day that she's spoken, of, spoken for? What they're saying is that she's too young to be married, and so how are we going to steward her and protect her? And so they use this imagery. She says she's a wall, and we're going to build a silver parapet on it. Um, if you think about a castle, right? A traditional castle, we have a wall in the corners. You have these large towers. That's a parapet. Okay. So he's saying if she is, uh, if she's a wall, then we're going to build these uh, parapets that are symbols of her strength, right? Uh, one one pastor said it this way. He said if she if she's a wall. Built upon the true foundation, strong and stable, she will be adorned and and beautified with battlements of silver. I love that thought, that her brothers had the conscious, they've made the conscious decision, yes, she's got a strong foundation, but we are going to decorate her with beautiful, dangerous parapets. That we are going to adorn her not to be this timid sheep that has to be protected always. She's an incredibly dangerous woman there is nothing safe about being an easer. This is true for us, not just as women, to think about who God has made you to be, but also as men, that God God, God designed a man and a woman to work together towards a common goal. And that yes, all of us have insecurities, but the truth is that doesn't change who God has made you to be. They made a conscious decision to build up their sister to make her more dangerous than she already was. These weren't just for her protection, but this is something that they did on purpose so that she could be seen. Talking about her um, also within the process of doing that, they make this, this talk about this imagery of that if she's a door, that they'll enclose it with cedar planks. This is talking about protection and boundaries. That as my sister grows, I'm going to not only adorn her and teach her and train her to be a godly woman, a powerful, dangerous woman, but if there's things that are going to come at her that she's not ready for, I'm going to bar the door. I'm going to protect her from it. And sometimes those restraints can be difficult, they can be challenging, but the truth is that they're, they are there on purpose. They want to protect her heart. So when the time came, Shulamith, was, uh, she made the case to her brothers that she's ready. Okay, look at this next verse in verse 10. I am a wall, and my breasts are like towers. So in his eyes I have become like one who finds peace. She's responding to her brothers, right? She says, I'm a wall. I'm already established. I'm strong. You don't have to worry about me anymore. The security that I found, I have found in Christ in my relationship with Christ. She says, "Look at me. I'm a grown woman now. I'm not. I. I. I am able to be able to, to do everything a woman's required of her." This comment here about her breasts like towers. This is a a metaphor that implies that she's mature and she's able to handle all the things that a woman should be able to handle, the responsibilities of an adult woman. Things like childbearing and childrearing. Because a woman cannot be a true, godly, mature woman and lead others until she has settled who her foundation is on her own. Ladies, you are not equipped to be able to be a woman, to be a mother, until you can learn how to lead your heart. Because you have no business leading someone else's heart if you can't rule your own. So she continues on. So she says... Because of these things, his eyes, uh, in his eyes, I become like one who finds peace. What she's talking about as the result of her brother's protection and their stewardship of her, combined with her decision to build herself up, it's resulted in confidence of her husband. So look at that. Look at this. In Proverbs 31, it says this about um, a husband and a wife. He says, "Who can find a capable wife? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and she will not lack anything good." The idea that she has lived her life in a way, she has built herself up in in a, in a way that she is confident in herself. And so what happens is her husband is not worried about trying to protect my little dainty flower. I can't let her get hurt by the world. When he sees her, he sees an easer, he sees one who is ready for battle, who is completely self aware. Yes, I lead her, but I don't have to drag her along. She is very capable. In fact, you should watch her be very capable. That's the idea, is that he doesn't have to worry about worry. Whenever he sees her, whenever she looks at him, whenever he looks at her, he finds peace. So all of this leads Shulamith to knowing her value, right? In this next section, she pulls uh, she pulls from the, the, the first lesson, right? And she contrasts her value with the vineyard of King Solomon. I know that we're running a little long. I'm almost finished. She says, Solomon owned a vineyard in Balaam Haman, uh, he leased the vineyard to tenants. Each uh, was to bring for his uh, each was to bring for his fruit one thousand pieces of silver. I have my own vineyard. The thousand are for you, Solomon, but two hundred for those who guard its fruits. Um, talking about Solomon's vineyard, this is uh, this is an homage to him. You know, this is uh, it's uh, it's interesting that he's brought up several times. Remember, if we read the name of Solomon, um, according to tra- to tradition, this can either mean Solomon directly or it can mean. Uh, him as an image, right? So think about all the things that Solomon represents. Wisdom, power, um, prestige, wealth, all those things. So she's talking about Solomon owned a vineyard. She's using him as a description of the vineyard itself that produced income, and it was so large he had to have stewards that that took care of it, right? So um, what she's saying here is that her own life is a vineyard, Solomon has this huge vineyard over here that he, he has to have other people to help take care of it because he's not able to do all of the work. Um, but me, verse 12, I have a vine- I have my own vineyard. She tells Solomon, you can keep the big one. You can keep all that other stuff. I can take care of my own. So she's saying, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready for this. Verse 13, she says, You who dwell in the gardens, companions are listening for your voice. I'm sorry, this is the man speaking. He says, you who dwell in the gardens, companions are listening for your voice. Let me hear you. He's calling for her. Notice after she's had some reflection and she's thought about who she is, where she's been, the the development of her own life, he calls to her and he says, where are you? I'm listening for you. And it ends with this refrain. She says, hurry to me, my love. And be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. What she's talking about here in her answer is that she's inviting him to come to her. She tells him to hurry or to run. Come find me quickly. Right? The language here implies that she wants to run into the wilderness with him. She longs for the adventures ahead and delights and the delights of life with him. Notice that when the song began in chapter one, she's like, Where is my love? Where is my love? Where is he? And now we see him calling to her. Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? He wants to take her to the wilderness at the very first. And at the end, she wants him to take her to the wilderness at the end. That she is, she's developed. She's a different person now. She's ready. She knows exactly what lies ahead. And so she's excited about what's ahead, what's going to happen. A couple of imagery here things is that the spices, they speak of beauty and fragrance and value and wealth and sweetness. Uh, these are the things that are found on the adventure. This is how great, how precious, how wonderful their relationship was to the maiden, right? she It's no wonder that she longed to return there with him, right? There's a richness in marriage, both spiritually, physically, and emotionally. She says, we're not going to find any of that stuff here in the vineyard, in the garden. We got to go where the adventure is. That's where the sweet stuff is. That's where the real stuff is. That's where the wealth is found. That's where we need to go. Um, the, the idea here of a, of a deer, a stag, remember she's referred to him like that before, that he is, that he is uh, full of energy and strength to come and, um, and to feed, right? She says, take me like a gazelle or a young stag to the mountains of spices. So in closing, I, think, I want you to think about this, that the message of Song of Songs is God's commentary on marriage, right? Not just on our relationship with each other, but also on our relationship with him. In it, we see a woman and a man learn to love each other in the most intimate ways. The song has a dual meaning. One is God's relationship with us and how Christ has loved us like a good shepherd. And the other is how we are to love each other as an easer and a good shepherd. This is God's design for marriage, that in doing this, we put the love of Christ on display to the world around us, not just to our marriages to each other, but to our friends, to our relationships, and to our family. This is how we build strong marriages, is by giving up ourselves and loving each other like God intended. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Married Now What Podcast is a ministry of Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It is meant to be a resource for in-depth Bible study for couples striving to build their lives on the truth of God's Word. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org. Come alive, our God will not be moved, your Word forever true.